welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. First of all, it's now official. As we reported on exploration a few weeks ago, the bad news is life expectancy in the United States has dropped a full year. We haven't seen a drop like that since World War II, and of course, it affects African Americans and minorities even more severely. And now, of course, the leading cause of death in the United States is no longer heart disease or cancer. It is the coronavirus. And speaking about the coronavirus, when is the madness going to end? Some people are saying perhaps late July, the bulk of the population will be vaccinated, and maybe we can get back to normal perhaps at the end of this year. Other people are saying, wait a minute, new mutations of the virus keep popping up in the United States alone. Seven, count them, seven new varieties of the virus has been detected. This is in addition to the version of the virus already raging through the United Kingdom and South Africa. And now another one has popped up in Nigeria. So in other words, some people are saying that we may need a booster shot. Not one, not two, but three shots in order to protect the population against these new mutations which keep popping up around the world. And then, here's a question. What's the relationship between the coronavirus and global warming? Well, at first you may say to yourself, come on, there is none. And don't think that global warming causes everything that is bad in the world. But a new paper is coming out saying, no, look at the evidence. The evidence shows an indirect correlation between the rise of the coronavirus and global warming. And we'll talk about that. Speaking of which, why is Texas under such extreme stress with ice, with snow, with blackouts, with all sorts of problems dealing with the weather? Some people say, once again, it could be global warming, and we'll talk about that in today's show. And then, congratulations to NASA. Yes, the Mars Perseverance probe scored a bullseye on the red planet. And NASA once again has beat the Mars jinx. The Mars jinx is that on average, 60% of all probes that are sent to Mars, well, they never make it. They crash, they don't stop in time and fling off out of space. But this time, it was a bullseye. So we'll talk about what we expect to get for $2.4 billion. And then news on the medical front. A biomarker, a simple blood test for Alzheimer's. Of course, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease, which some people think will be the disease of the century as people get older. But the question is, is there a cheap, simple way to have a blood test to see whether or not you will eventually come down with Alzheimer's disease? And the answer apparently is yes. A new chemical has been found and it turns out that when people start to show signs of Alzheimer's disease, or even before, this biomarker can register the fact 
that you're going to get Alzheimer's. So we'll talk about this new breakthrough. A simple blood test may reveal whether or not you have Alzheimer's disease. And then, of course, that begs the other question. Why do you want to know? There's no cure for it. Do you really want to know what's eventually going to kill you? Well, some people say yes. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. First, the bad news. As we reported on exploration a few months ago, life expectancy in the United States, and it's now official, has dropped by one full year. You know, every year we used to get bored when the government would say that once again, life expectancy is marching forward. People are living longer and living happier, healthier lives. Well, not this year. Life expectancy dropped for a full year, the largest drop since World War II. And of course, it affects African-Americans and minorities even worse, 2.5-year drop in life expectancy for African-Americans. And the leading cause of death every year, it used to be heart disease, followed by cancer. It was almost monotonous he hearing these reports, heart disease and then cancer. Well, now the leading cause of death in the United States is the coronavirus. However, there is a little bit of good news, and that is vaccinations are picking up. Almost, almost 2 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are being distributed um, per day. And then the question that people are asking is, when might we go back to normal? Some people are saying perhaps late July, the bulk of the population will be vaccinated and we will be headed toward herd immunity. At that point, perhaps at 70%, Enough people will have been evacuated that there's no room for the virus to grow and infect more people. However, there's a problem, a big problem, a wild card. The wild card is more and more mutations are popping out. You see, the more virus we have, the more possibility of mistakes occurring in the replication of the virus. So the more you have, the higher the probability that it will mutate. And now that the virus has spread all over the entire population of the human race, we expect more mutations to be popping up. First of all, in the United States, it was just announced this week that seven, seven new mutations have been found just in the United States. Of course, we have one in the United Kingdom, one in South Africa, but now we have a third one brewing in Nigeria. And the question is, to fend off all these mutations, will we have to have a booster shot, perhaps a third shot? And the answer is probably yes. Take a look at the seasonal flu. We get inoculated for that once a season. Why? Because it mutates fairly rapidly. Well, originally it was thought that the coronavirus did not mutate that rapidly. But now, however, we are genetically sequencing all the different varieties of the virus around the world. And we're beginning to see that there's a family tree, that mutations are occurring, new branches of the virus are emerging. And some of these are more infectious and more lethal than the original variety. Scientists in particular are zeroing in on what are called the spike proteins. You've all seen pictures of the coronavirus. It looks like a corona and has spikes coming out. 
These are like keys, keys to the kingdom, because these spikes insert themselves into a lock, which is on the surface of your lung cells, and that's how the virus gains entry into your lungs and perhaps one day kill you. And then the question is, where are these mutations taking place? Well, they are taking place precisely at the spike protein location. That is dangerous because it means that sooner or later, with more mutations building up around the spike protein, some of these mutations are harmless, but some of them will gain access to the cell's genetic machinery much easier than before and create perhaps yet another pandemic. Already, Pfizer and Moderna, manufacturers of the two most popular vaccines in the United States, are already preparing a booster shot. Already, they're tinkering with the formula by which they created their vaccine, and they're modifying it to guard against these mutations in the spike proteins that are now being seen around the world. And again, seven mutations found just in the United States alone. Now, I should also point out that the statistics behind these mutations is still not well documented. That means that, well, some of these mutations could be harmless. We don't know. All we know is that it's a crapshoot. And if the dice is rolled the wrong way, we could be the victims. So in other words, we're seeing evolution at work. The more mutations we have, the more viruses can spread, the more viruses can spread, the more mutations you get, and you have an exponential proliferation of these mutant versions of the coronavirus. Well, we'll keep you informed, but there's a new report coming out linking global warming and the pandemic. Now, you may say to yourself, come on. I mean, the global warming is the boogeyman for everything. Is everything bad caused by global warming? Well, let's take a look at the data. Scientists are now analyzing the area in Yunnan, China, where the bat population thrives. And it turns out that by looking at records going back 100 years into the past, we see that there's been a change, an abrupt change in the forestation of that area. Forests have sprung up, jungle-like areas have sprung up in that area. And that's exactly where the bat population thrives. The bat population thrives in these forests, and there are 3,000, 3,000 different types of coronaviruses affecting this bat population. And again, most of them are harmless. However, it means that on average, each bat species in the Yunnan area carries on an average of 2.7 types of the virus. So in other words, we have a huge reservoir of coronavirus, which is exploding because of the changing temperature and the warming of that area, causing a migration of the forest area where the bats live. Now, to be sure, most are harmless, but a few of them, like MERS and SARS, they have already created panic and pandemics in the eastern part of the world. Also, the pangolin, yet another animal implicated in the chain of infections of the virus, well, it turns out that the pangolin population also has expanded because of the increase in temperature and the increase in the forested area. And now, let me say a few things about global warming 
and what's happening with the weather in the United States. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, look outside, snow everywhere, three feet of snow in New York City just two weeks ago. And what does that have to do with global warming? Isn't it the opposite? Well, no, there is a link. Again, this is a theory, and it's a theory that seems to be borne out, but this is what the theory says. Watch the evening news, and you see that what's happening with the United States is that the jet stream is wandering. Usually the jet stream comes from Alaska, goes down northern Canada, dips into, let's say, the Dakotas, and then goes back out again. That's what we have normally. This time, the jet stream is going all the way down to Texas and creating temperatures not seen since World War II or not seen for perhaps a hundred years. So why? Well, it turns out that if you look at the map from the top, you realize that sitting on the North Pole is the polar vortex. The polar vortex is like a cylinder. It's a hurricane sitting on the very top of the North Pole. Usually the cylinder is stable. It doesn't wander very much. However, as the Earth heats up, the polar vortex starts to wander. And as it wanders, it drags the jet stream along with it. So the next time you see a map of the United States, look at the top, and you'll see that the polar vortex is wandering. And this wandering is caused by instability, and this instability in turn is caused by the fact that the, the, the temperature of the polar region is warming up. Now, it turns out that the temperature inside the vortex versus the temperature outside the vortex, if there's a sharp differential, it's stable, relatively stable. But what's happening is that everything is warming up. The polar vortex itself is warming up. And so the difference in temperature between the inside and outside of the polar vortex is being reduced. And that is causing the instability of the polar vortex, which in turn is causing the jet stream to wander into your backyard. And so again, this is the theory, but it's a theory that can be tested. And it's a theory that means that as we have more episodes of global warming, it means we'll have more episodes of the wandering of the polar vortex. And yes, we'll see disasters that we haven't seen since World War II and even before. Also, I'd like to extend congratulations to the engineers at NASA. The Mars Perseverance probe sailed 300 million miles from the Earth to Mars and landed on a bullseye right where they wanted. If you were following the path of that mission, you know there was 11 minutes of terror. For 11 minutes, as the probe approached Mars, we lost contact with it. It was on automatic pilot. Why? Because it takes 11 minutes for radio to go from Mars back to the planet Earth, traveling at the speed of light, or 186,282 miles per second. So that means that for 11 minutes, there was a lot of nail-biting and a lot of tension at Mission Control, realizing that everything was on autopilot. Everything had to go exactly according to plan, and bingo! They did it. We should also point out that there is something called the Mars Jinx. 60% of missions to Mars never make it. But NASA has a sterling record. Out of nine tries, eight have been successful to put 
NASA probes on the surface of the red planet. So let's talk about the mission itself. It costs $2.4 billion. It's about the size of an SUV. It weighs about 2,000 pounds, which is about the weight of a large truck. And it has a number of firsts. First of all, it's the first probe to send a helicopter to another planet. Think about that. The rover is a very slow device. It chugs along the sand, doesn't go very fast. It's very, very slow, just a few miles per hour at maximum. Wouldn't it be great to have a helicopter that can just whiz right over the plains and take gorgeous photographs of craters and the polar ice caps? Well, rovers cannot go to the polar ice caps. Rovers cannot go into many of the craters because they're simply too dangerous. Rovers can only go where it's boring, where we don't expect to find evidence of any life. And that's where the helicopter comes in. Second of all, rock retrieval. That's high on the agenda because we want to know what Martian soil is like. First of all, it's thought that we can melt and process Martian soil to create Martian brick. And instead of hauling cement from the Earth to Mars, we simply use the Martian terrain to create the bricks that will then in turn create an infrastructure of buildings on Mars. So we need to know what the rocks are like, and also we need to know the history of water on Mars, because of course microbial life may have flourished on Mars billions of years ago. In fact, there's one renegade theory uh, that says that Mars cooled off while the Earth was still molten, so maybe on the oceans of Mars back then, life got started. And meteors would then plow into Mars and send DNA into outer space, landing on the Earth. And here we are, folks. So that theory says that if you want to see a Martian, simply look in a mirror. Also, the probe has ground-penetrating radar. In other words, so far, we've only seen the boring parts of Mars. We've seen the very smooth plains where not many features are prominent because it's safe. We've never been to the polar ice caps. We've never been underground. We've never been in the, the, the canyons of Mars. But that's where a new generation of rovers may come in. There's a group called Boston Dynamics. You can Google it, Boston Dynamics. They're making robots that look like a horse or a dog. A dog that can roam across the, the ice caps of Mars, climb stairs, do all things that treads on a tractor cannot do. And so, in other words, in the future, we may be able to hop along the surface of Mars at a very good clip, really surveying the entire terrain of Mars, like the polar ice caps, and maybe find evidence of microbial life or some form of ancient Martian life. Also, we should point out, in all fairness, there's a traffic jam around Mars right now. The Chinese, the scientists at the United Arab Emirates, they too have sent probes to Mars. They went into orbit just two weeks ago. And in fact, around May or so, the exact time has not been fixed yet, the Chinese plan to release its version of a, of a lander and a rover on the surface of Mars. And so the UAE probe simply is orbiting around the red planet at the present time. 
The Chinese probe is also orbiting around Mars right now, but eventually will drop a rover onto the surface of Mars probably around May. So in other words, we have a traffic jam around Mars. And what does that mean? The cost of space travel is dropping. And that's initiating what is called the second era of space exploration. The first era was in the 1960s with the Apollo space program, and there was a vision then. The vision was, beat the Russians. Well, we beat the Russians, and then there was no vision. And because rocketry costs so much money, the whole uh, manned space program collapsed. It cost $10,000 just to put a pound of anything into orbit. That's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs to put you into outer space. Now, everything has changed. First of all, we have Silicon Valley billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos opening up their own checkbooks, putting a new vision for the space program. The vision of Elon Musk is to create a multi-planet species. That is, we need an insurance policy for humanity because the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why there are no dinosaurs here today to talk about it. Well, that's the vision of Elon Musk of SpaceX to create a multi-planet species. But what about Jeff Bezos, the other richest man in the world? His vision is to create the Earth as a celestial garden, to put polluting heavy industry in outer space, to make the Earth a paradise, so that a lot of the polluting industries would be done in outer space. Well, we'll see what happens, but again, NASA has a timetable. In 2024 or so, NASA expects to send the SLS booster rocket with astronauts to the moon. The first woman will then walk on the surface of the moon soon afterwards. And then after that, a lunar orbiter will be created, from which a Mars rocket will be built as it orbits around the moon. And then, who knows, sometime after 2030, Perhaps a mission to Mars will take place with astronauts on board. Or, if Elon Musk has his way, he wants to simply bypass the moon entirely and go off to the red planet. Also, news on the medical front. The disease of the century is actually Alzheimer's disease. Because, of course, the coronavirus will probably be brought under control in the coming year. At least that's the hope. But Alzheimer's is here forever. It's a disease of the century. Wouldn't it be great to have a simple biomarker to tell whether or not you have it or not? Right now, the only reliable way to determine whether or not you have Alzheimer's is to do an autopsy after you're dead. Some experimental tests are being developed now. One is to use MRI brain scans. Another is to analyze spinal fluid by putting a needle up your spinal cord. Another one is to use PET scans on the brain to look for the decay of radioactive materials inside your brain. These are largely experimental and very costly and awkward. What we need is a simple blood test, something that you can do in the privacy of your own home. Well, it's coming. Scientists have now identified a new enzyme, GFAP. GFAP could be it. It turns out that when the brain starts to show signs of Alzheimer's, 
GFAP is emitted from the brain into the bloodstream. And so a simple, a simple test allows you to tell whether or not you have Alzheimer's disease. So in other words, this could be a game changer. I mean, think about it for a moment. My mother, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease. And it's so sad looking into her eyes, realizing that she doesn't recognize me. She doesn't even recognize herself. All the years of suffering, all the years of trials and tribulations and tears, all of that forgotten. It is tragic that people work so hard to raise a family, to survive, and then have it all wasted away when your memory disappears. Well, wouldn't it be great if you had at least some advanced warning? Now, some people say, well, maybe I don't want to know. I mean, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease right now. So what difference does it make? Well, personally, I think it makes a lot of difference. Because if you know you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, you can start to prepare. Because, of course, who's going to pick up the tab? Who's going to be taking care of you if it spins out of control? Your relatives. You're going to be a burden on your relatives. Wouldn't it be great if you can lay the groundwork now, financially, socially, to make the arrangements so that you don't simply dump it on your children or simply dump it onto your relatives? Wouldn't it be great if you had some advanced warning? So my personal point of view, and again, everybody has to make up their own mind about this, and that is that it's better to know because you can prepare. And also think about this. By the time you're in your 80s, the fraction of the population which has Alzheimer's disease approaches 50%. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is not an abstract exercise in statistics. No, we're talking about the fact that by the time you hit 80, 50% of everybody you see around you, including yourself, may have their memory gone. And that's why I say it's better to know. Even if there's no cure, it's better to know so that you can prepare, you can ease the pain, you can make sure that your relatives simply don't have the problem dumped on them all of a sudden. You can make sure that the transition to an Alzheimer's regime is as painless as is medically possible. And that's why a simple blood test perhaps a blood test that you can do in the privacy of your own home, could be the wave of the future. Well, that concludes the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of life in the universe by bringing on astrobiology Robert Hagen. So we'll talk about life in the universe on exploration. And if you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org.
Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Every week on Exploration, we talk about some of the most amazing developments in science technology that affect our lives. And we're going to continue a discussion about life in outer space with astrobiologist Robert Hagen. Are there alien civilizations out there? Or what about microbial life on other planets? This is the realm of astrobiology. And also, let me make a short announcement, and that is on April, April 6th, I'll be coming out with my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. In other words, is there a single paradigm, a single metaphor that summarizes the entire universe? Well, the Greeks had two metaphors. One was, of course, the atomic theory of Democrates. Everything consists of tiny little balls called atoms. But Pythagoras had an opposing idea. He worked out the theory of music, of resonances, of musical notes. And he thought that the richness of the universe was the richness of music. Only music had the power to describe the diversity of life and non-life objects in the universe. Well, that theory never went anywhere until recently. Now we have something called string theory, which is what I do for a living. And in string theory, we think that the entire universe is a symphony of tiny little vibrating strings. In other words, the paradigm of the universe is music. Anyway, find out about this 2,000-year quest to find the God equation, the theory of everything. Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after uh, a theory, the unified field theory, but he never got it. Well, today we think we have it. String theory is controversial. Nobel Prize winners have split on the question. It is so sophisticated that it has the capability of summarizing the entire universe in an equation perhaps no more than one inch long. But it is controversial. It is very difficult to test because, of course, each solution of string theory is an entire universe. And how do you create universes in the laboratory? Well, anyway, find out about the controversy, find out about the history, find out about the attempt by hundreds of the finest scientists of the ages to create the God equation, the theory of everything. Well, let's move on now because we began a discussion about life in outer space. Let's bring on astrobiologist Robert Hagen. You know, the whole name astrobiology used to be a contradiction in terms. Astronomy, biology, how can you put two divergent words together? And yet now it's a whole science, the science of life in outer space. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh, man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio, that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back, and we'd collect butterflies, and we'd collect frogs, and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I love looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky, and Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on. When I was in high school, I moved to northern New Jersey. And northern New Jersey is a just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities. And I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey, go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals. 
And that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay. Now, you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been brought to life by major new funding through NASA and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller, young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago, his mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Yuri had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown, and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. The amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer and we're still a long way from knowing but this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical 
origin of life, going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans look like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean, and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight, but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth where all three of those ingredients come together are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast, completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth, but plants in turn get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating uh, device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy, for example, from plants or from sunlight is converted through a process called oxidation-reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. 
And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very what are called reducing fluids come out from the below the ocean surface and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay, now the astronomer Fred Hoyle had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off. And therefore, life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks. Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars, and then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a Mars-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space, and those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed. They could contain microbes, and those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life, because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars and we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the Earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? 
Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question. And a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole Earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, Well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, Food depends on proteins. Uh, Proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, There are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, And it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever. And it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose. DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in this environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else to get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, we always see aliens from outer space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally, so they can interchange uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that, in some sense, DNA really is preferable. 
and that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspect of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA, but I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code, and that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if, even if it's there is a code on other worlds that it would be very different from ours, so I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life, but I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that, if another DNA got off the ground and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA, or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA. I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us, and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules used in DNA and RNA are called right-handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left-handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting, there's a new product out. You can buy left-handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener, which gives you no calories. It's a great invention. It's a great idea. So if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed, and they used left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment, because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space. Uh, amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there was a even more primitive structures even before RNA. So what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there's so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule and it's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose. There are some minerals that attract the bases. Um, but there are other neat ideas out there. In the book, Genesis, I describe an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire, that soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. 
And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases, the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, and that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Platt's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Oh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA, the ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. There's something called the citric acid cycle that seems to be built into every living thing. And there are a few other chemical pathways, the ability to take nitrogen and convert it to ammonia, for example. That's also fundamental. That's a way of using the element nitrogen in biological systems. So there are a few chemical pathways that we find in every living thing, and those we believe are the most primitive chemical pathways that point us to something about the earliest life. And where are these organisms that are the most ancient, most primitive forms of life on the Earth? Are they in the bottom of the ocean? Right now, the most primitive organisms that we know of are all in very extreme environments, in places where the acidity is very high, in places where it's very cold, in hot, deep hydrothermal vents. And people have two ideas about that. One is a possible, very real possibility that life originated in one of these extreme environments. The other possibility is that life originated near the surface, like Stanley Miller would say, but because of those nasty asteroids and meteors and comets that kept blasting the surface, the only life that survived those last insults was life that had adapted to the deep, hot, protected environments within the Earth's crust. So either way, those are the most primitive organisms that we see today. Well, that concludes our interview with Dr. Robert Hagen. He's a professor of astrobiology, author of the book Genesis. And you know, years ago, there was no such term as astrobiology. Talking about life forms in outer space, you were considered a crackpot or a flying saucer buff if you were interested in alien life on other planets. But now that we've discovered 4,000 of these planets circulating around other stars in the galaxy, we begin to realize that life could be plentiful, at least microbial life. And then we begin to appreciate life on the Earth, where we have intelligent life. So many conditions have to be met 
to create intelligent life on the planet Earth. You have to have a liquid water ocean. You have to have a stable climate. You have to have a large moon to prevent the Earth from tumbling. You have to have a large Jupiter to clean out the early solar system like a vacuum cleaner of dangerous debris and asteroids and meteors which can destroy life. So many conditions have to be met and yet here we are. We are an example of a life form that did become intelligent, at least we think so, on the planet Earth. Well, that's it for exploration. And if you want to know more about exploration of my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and we have four million fans on Facebook. So join us every week when we discuss science and its impact on your life and mine. Good day.